look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Happy you can join me at the season's quarter poll. I'm going to be joined by Carolina Panthers head coach Matt Rule. Matt Rule doing a terrific job. Got off to an 0-2 start. Lost Christian McCaffrey. Everybody's saying, man, looks like a 2-14 season for the Panthers. But they've come back, won two in a row, steadied the ship even without the best player in their franchise. Uh, so we'll talk to Matt Rule about that and lots of other stuff. And we'll also be joined to try to get to the bottom of what exactly happened in Houston with Bill O'Brien, with veteran scribe John McClain of the Houston Chronicle. He's covered all things football in Houston for 44 years. So we'll go to the source and find out exactly why Bill O'Brien got fired just four games into uh, his seventh season as the coach of the Texans. Before we do, Let's just talk for a minute about the MVP. And obviously, after four games of the season, there's no way you can know who's going to be the MVP um, because basically four guys are at the, lead, at the lead right now, four quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes of Kansas City, Josh Allen of the Bills, and two quarterbacks with Wisconsin roots, uh, Russell Wilson, former Wisconsin Badger, and Aaron Rodgers the standard bearer for the Green Bay Packers. And one of the points I want to make, I've got one of the 50 MVP votes for the Associated Press. I've had it for, I don't know, 20 some years. Um, this is a great example of why the MVP vote, I wish that it would get changed so that we could vote on, let's just say, uh, we could vote for five guys on say a five, four, three, two, one basis. Or, or any sort of point total that you would want to use. Because this is going to be a year, I feel, where because the offense is so far ahead of the defense uh, so far through four weeks, I think there's going to be some historic performances. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, 13 touchdowns, no interceptions uh, through four weeks. Russell Wilson, his quarterback rating over 125. He's having far and away the best year of his career. All four of the quarterbacks who are leading, all are quarterbacking 4-0 and teams. But, um, you know, and, and obviously things will change, um, and things will change, I think, probably rapidly because they always do. But the one thing I would say is, and the one thing I'm going to be careful not to get overwhelmed with in the last three quarters of this season don't get overwhelmed with numbers. All numbers in today's football are relative. They're relative because you're seeing that everybody in the NFL uh, has uh, explosive offensive numbers. Do you realize that since the year 2016, if you looked at every team in the NFL, there's only one team, the New York Jets, with a negative touchdown to interception differential. Uh, in touchdown passes. And that's that's incredible because even 20 years ago, there would have been 12 teams at least with a negative touchdown to interception ratio, uh, you know, at this point. So first of all, numbers have changed. And second of all, especially this year, because uh, the penalties are way down, particularly in offensive holding, uh, and the officials are just letting players get away with more. Will that exist all year? We don't know, but it's existing now. And I think we need to just be careful in saying, oh, my God, look at these numbers. They're out of control. And, and look, in my opinion, quarterbacks are better than they've ever been. Look at how Joe Burrow has come into the league. 
Look at how Justin Herbert has come into the league uh, for the Bengals and Chargers, respectively. I have little doubt in my mind that whenever he starts playing, sometime probably in the next two or three weeks, that Tua Tonga-Valoa, the Miami Dolphins, will be the exact same way. Um, I asked Ryan Fitzpatrick on this podcast last week. You probably heard it. What's going on with all of these quarterbacks coming in and playing so well and these explosive offenses? And I think he's right. Quarterbacks and receivers are so much more NFL ready when they walk into their first training camp. That's the thing I've noticed. Plus, you know, Justin Herbert finds out he's starting about 15 minutes against Patrick before the game against Patrick Mahomes because of the injury uh, to, to Tyrod Taylor a couple of weeks ago. And he goes out, and what's he done since then? He played Mahomes toe-to-toe, played him into overtime, put up 31 points at Tampa, and played Tom Brady a 38-31 shootout. So, you know, I guess I guess the interesting point that I would make about all of these quarterbacks, MVP candidates and quarterbacks in general, take it with perspective. Understand that the game is changing and not just the quarterbacks. So we're going to now go into my conversation with Matt Rule, the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. I found Matt in a, uh, in a basement room watching film, uh, watching tape rather, uh, at Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte on Monday of this week. And he's trying to stay ahead of the curve watching tape on the Atlanta Falcons, who they go and play uh, in Atlanta on Sunday. So let's hear from Matt Rule. Happy to be joined on the podcast by uh, Matt Rule, the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. And uh, Matt, I'm sure that this isn't the case in your building as we talk to you at uh, uh, a- after week four of the NFL season. You're two and two. And I am hugely pleasantly surprised for the Carolina Panthers. But you probably don't look at two and two as anything to to celebrate, but how do you feel about the first month of the season? You know, I mean, it's been a, it's been a roller coaster. You know, I, I, um, I don't think I probably understood how much not having uh, the preseason, not having the OTAs was going to affect us, you know, kind of getting into it. Um, I, I go back to the Friday before we, we played the Raiders, you know, we walked through one more time. Hey, here's what pregame is like. I mean, normally you don't do that on a Friday. That's a very like, high school or college thing to have to do, but um, I, I'm proud of our guys in terms of, I think every week we've gotten a little bit better. Uh, every week we've learned from what we did you know, wrong the previous week, what we did right the previous week. So uh, we've certainly played our best game, you know, yesterday. Have you, uh, has it hit you really yet? And is there much of a difference in your mind between getting a team ready to play a college football game and getting a team ready to play a pro football game? I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, I don't think there's much uh, difference. You know, I, I remember walking off the field at at the Raiders game and being like, okay, this is the NFL, you know, and we lost the game. Um, But I think football comes down to the same things. You know, we had four turnovers against Tampa Bay and guess what? We lost, you know, uh, um, you know, we, we uh, didn't have any penalties or turnovers against the Chargers and we had a chance to win the game. So I think those things um, are, are similar. I, I would say the uh, the atmosphere, you know, not having people in the in the in the crowd, all those things has been significantly different. You know, we had we had some people in the in the in the crowd yesterday, I think about four or five thousand people. And it it felt like it felt like what I'm used to. And so that's maybe been the biggest difference. But. The NFL to the college, I, I think it's 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 pretty much the same. You know, teams are teams. When you're standing on the sidelines watching a game and watching either the hitting or the speed or whatever, coaches many times will say, yeah, that was – and sometimes players will say, yeah, you know, the biggest difference between college and pro is the speed. You know, everybody is faster in the NFL uh, on average. But – do you really notice that when you're watching and coaching games? Oh yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, and I think it just really kind of shows up with the the big men, you know, the big guys. I mean, the the defensive linemen, 
that you face week in and week out are just absolute, absolutely great players. And, um, you know, there's great players everywhere, you know, to, to be on the field yesterday and see Larry Fitzgerald, to see Patrick Peterson, you know, these iconic players is certainly something. But I think from a football standpoint, um, I think it really comes down to just how 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 athletic and big and fast and dominant the offensive and defensive lines are at this level. You know, for people who don't know, and I'm sure most people do, um, you were the head coach of two teams in college football. You coached Temple, and then you coached Baylor. Um, your first year at Temple, you were 2-10. and ten. Your first year at Baylor in 2017, you were 1-11. And I just wonder, you know, I talked to you in the offseason about – similarities and differences and all that. But now that you're into it, you've coached the games. Is there a difference in taking over a rebuilding team at Temple and Baylor and taking over a rebuilding team in the NFL? You know, I think in college, um, you know, there is no free agency. There is no draft. You know, you're bringing in young players, but they're they're really young. And they're just not physically developed. And so what we did there was we played the young guys. And as they got older, as they became juniors, as they became seniors, they were, you know, we, we built dominant teams. I think for us, you know, coming here and, uh, you know, Marty Herney, the general manager and myself, you know, just as the roster was changing over in, 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 in uh, free agency, you know, we knew we had to add a bunch of pieces. As we looked at the defensive depth chart, you know, there were a lot of guys that were gone. And it was like, okay, you know, who's gonna who's gonna start? Who's gonna line up? And so it was free agency, and then it was the draft. The great thing is those guys uh, that we brought in. I think we've we we found the right guys. You know, they uh, whether they're free agents that we signed or whether they were the um, guys we brought in, in in the draft. They they've played well for us. They've gotten better for us, and that that's allowed our defense to have a chance. And that to me is the biggest. It's been the same process. I mean, I think anytime you come into a team. You've got to go find your guys. You've got to find guys, whether they're already on the roster or, or from somewhere else, but you have to find guys who are going to do it the way that, you know, we all want to do it, that are going to buy into our process, that are going to play the game the way that we want to play it and practice the way we want to practice. And um, it, it takes a little bit longer maybe in college because they have to learn here. We, we've had nothing but pros and they've, 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 um, they've done it really well. You know, uh, Matt, I think most people would notice looking at your team that, um, you know, Christian McCaffrey, who is probably the best player, you know, in your organization, he goes down with an injury uh, in week two, and um, I believe, and uh, he is not, he's not played the last two weeks. You start 0-2, you're 2-0 since then, and you know, the simplistic thing is just to say, wow, how are you winning without McCaffrey? But what I've noticed about your team the last couple of weeks is that, and I always think this about the NFL, you know, in Dallas on Sunday, Nick Chubb went down and Kareem Hunt was playing hurt. So they put in a guy named Dearness Johnson at running back a free agent from South Florida, from Immokalee, Florida, Emily, uh, Emily, Edger and James's hometown. And all of a sudden, they're running the ball great. And it, not necessarily better than they would have run it with, with Chubb, but they're running the ball fine, and they continue to be able to run the ball. And I look at your team, and I look at Mike Davis, for instance, a guy who nobody knows anything about. And if you're in the NFL, you know, and if you're on a roster and you were told to get your helmet on and get in the game, you know, it's not like you're going to be awful. You right. know, it, it, you've got good players. There's a reason why Mike Davis is on your team and why you trust him to back up Christian McCaffrey. So that to me has been the difference. That plus the fact that Teddy Bridgewater is, you know, really playing well and kind of getting his sea legs under him. But I think you have been able to at least early on 
build a roster that has some pretty good depth. And so if you lose a really great player, it's not, woe is us, we're going to lose every week. Yeah, I mean, I think you want to have a team that um, the players know you trust them. You know, we went to the Chargers, and, and we have we have three players who have been to Pro Bowls. Maybe we have a couple more that I don't know. But, like, Russell Okung, who's a who's a Pro Bowl caliber left tackle, he, he hasn't played the last two games. And K.K. Short couldn't play against the Chargers. And, and I want the guys um, – and then, obviously, Christian, you know, I want Mike Davis. I want Reggie Bonifon. I want – uh, Greg Little, I want um, Zach Kerr. I want them to know that, like, you know, we we uh, trust them and we believe in them. They're here for a reason, just as you said. And at the same time, there's also a standard in our organization for how a starter plays. And um, if you go in there to be a starter, we expect you to do your job and play really hard and play to our standard. And so the more you do that, the more it, it, I think it becomes contagious. And I think a part of that is, you know, we we kind of practice like a college team and what I mean by that is like our twos, we expect our twos to get reps, you know, like we, we, uh, when practice is over, if the two, the two often stays out and runs through the script one more time. And I expect our coaches to coach our twos and our young coaches to coach our threes. And, and I believe in that because at the college level, you're trying to develop freshmen and sophomores and you want them to stay engaged. And I look at this level and I say, well, what's the difference? If we can be a place that develops young players, if we can take undrafted free agents and rookie players and, and, develop them, then when they're called upon, they'll be ready. And um, I'm sure other teams do that. I'm not saying we're revolutionary. I just, that's, that's what I know from being the son of a high school coach and a college coach. And we've come here and done this. And I think our twos, when, when they've been called upon, have gone in and, and, and they've really done a nice job for us. How has it been for you so far to, you know, this is a, this is a huge opportunity for you. This is a huge step for you to come into the NFL and to be handed the reins of an NFL team. With all due respect to Temple and Baylor, I would assume this is just a little bit different, obviously. And you do it, and you have to have a certain amount of hands-off with your team because of COVID and because of the kind of year this is. How has that changed how you coach your team? That, that's probably the hardest part. Like, like today's a Monday and normally on a Monday after a game, you know, I'd have a team meeting and for us to have this team meeting, it, you know, has to be virtual, you know? Um, and I, 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 I don't really want to do that. I want to, I want to look in people's eyes and, 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 and have relationships because sometimes you're going to say hard things sometimes, you know, so I move it to Wednesday. And um, again, I always go back to coach Coughlin. I always go back to, you know, Bill Parcells wrote uh, wrote a Harvard business review, you know, the tough work of turning around a team. And it's something that I live by. And it basically, the thing I learned from those two men was have one-on-one conversations and be really clear about your expectations and also listen. Um, you know, listen to, I had a player the other day, this is a, this is a, this is a great microcosm of the concept of listening. I had a player text me, you know, I have rules about what to wear at the hotel. And I had a player text me and ask me, coach, why do we have to wear this? Why do we have to wear that? And, you know, a younger me might've been like, just, you know, just, just wear it. Why are you, why are you asking that? And I said, well, here's why, you know, I just think that when we go to a game, you know, we want to attach a certain level of importance to the game and we want to look, look a certain way. And the player said, I love it. Thanks coach. And I said, why do you ask? He says, well, I want to be a coach someday. So when I don't understand something, I always ask, you know, instead of me flying off the hook and being like, you know, I just take a minute moment and ask. And I think that's been the key to this year. And it's the same key to when I went to Baylor coming off a scandal was like, just sit down and talk to guys one-on-one explain why you're doing what you're doing and listen to them. You know, like when the players come to me and say, coach, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? I, I just ask why. And if they have a great reason, then let, let's rock with it. Let's do it. And I think when players feel ownership of the team, when coaches feel like they have an ownership in the team, um, then you always have a chance. And that's, that's maybe the lessons I've learned from other places that I'm just in a different way here trying to implement. And I can just see the, the, um, the leadership, uh, blossoming from our team, which is really fun to see. Can you give me one example of something that a player really wanted to do, or maybe a group of players really wanted to do that you said, okay, let's do it. I mean, after the game yesterday, like our, our meetings start today at one and we're walking off and Shaq Thompson put his arm around my shoulder. He said, Hey, can Trey and I talk to you? And I said, Oh no, what, what do you guys want? And he's like, no, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I said, you're not going to ask for tomorrow off, are you? Because I'm not, I'm not doing that. 
And they were like, hey, can we, can we move the meetings up? Can we start earlier? You know, um, which affects everything, right? It's a big change. Like I have to change the lifting times, the the, chiro- the chiropractors have to come in, you know. But I said, yeah, if, if you guys want to get in earlier, that, that's no problem. And that's just a little thing, but it's recent in my brain. But why would he why would they he want to why would he want to do that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe so they can get, get home when their kids are getting off school. You know, if they go, you know, they get out a little bit earlier, they can go see their yeah. family and friends. I mean, um, one thing I try to be really, really, really thoughtful of is, you know, we have a lot of players who are our fathers and our great fathers. And you know what, getting home at four or five is a lot different than getting home at, you know, three or four. Um, so just listening to them and just saying, Hey, let's move the meetings up. Let's get started earlier. Some of these guys are early morning guys. You know, we have a bunch of guys that come in and lift at like six and seven in the morning just trying to listen to them about how the schedule fits. They're the ones who have to commute. They're the ones who want to take their kids to school a certain day. So just, you know, we have a certain way that we're going to do things, but if, if there's a way that I can do it better that helps them in their lives or helps them be better pros or be better fathers, then, then I, then I certainly want to do that. Um, how have you responded and how have you uh, accepted, I guess, all the different COVID protocols now that the season has started and you see what happens in Tennessee and you see what happens in other places. Has this given you some teaching moments? You know, I think, um, I think we've been really diligent about it from the beginning. I mean, we, we have a guy on our staff, Sean Pat, and he's been with me since temple. And like, he, I mean, he, he literally checks the tracer data every morning and he sees any encounters and we're constantly trying to figure out like, you know, it, to me, there's all this information. If you use it properly, then you can you can eliminate defects. And because we consider ourselves like a process place, like, you know, we're trying to make sure we do everything right. So, I mean, we, we wear the masks. Like, it's not, you know, like the coaches wear the masks. Um, we, 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 we've become really attuned to, like, uh, the testing. We have great doctors here that are making sure that we're going above and beyond it. So, to me, I don't think of it as just us following the protocols, which I think is a key. Like we want to embrace them. Like I want to keep this place safe. Like I have players on this team whose wives are pregnant. Like I do not, me personally, I do not want to bring anything to them that they take home. So I take it really seriously for me. Um, one, one of the reasons why I got into coaching was my uncle, my dad and my uncle Chuck, who's in the Pennsylvania high school coaches hall of fame. And he passed away, I guess it would be now, I guess it'd be four weeks ago from COVID down in Florida. Wow. And so, so like, that was like, that was like a heart wrenching shot for, for my family and I like, um, and so like, it's just very real to us, you know? So I think, um, I think we've tried to do, I think we try to do a great job with it. Um, knowing that we can't always control the results, right? There's a chance that COVID can hit us at any place, but we can certainly not just follow, but embrace the protocols and embrace the process that they put in front of us. And try to do it better. I mean, literally try to, you know, like I went from wearing a mask week one to a visor week two because I was like, you know, it's really hard to not pull the mask down. And I didn't want to break the rules. So I went to a visor and that would keep me, you know, compliant and safe and keep everyone around me safe. So, um, you know, that certainly the Titans, you know, the thing that's been out there, that that's that's I think an uh, example for all of us. But seeing the effect that it could have on people in our in our organization personally, I think our guys take that very seriously. I find it interesting that every picture that's going to be taken of you in your rookie year as an NFL coach, you'll have either a shield or a mask on. So you'll always know, oh, yeah, that was in 2020. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, You know, you told me in the summer that you seem to be, and I remember thinking at the time, wow, this guy is really taking – the protocol seriously. You told me you had a guy with a horn who every nine minutes just blew the horn, you know, horn guy. And, and uh, I remember thinking about that, how cool it was that in essence, you just wanted people to scatter and to make sure that you just don't stay in the same spot for very long. How did that work? And do you still do it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think now when they changed it, you know, I think the, epidemiology says like 15 minutes, you know, together right. viral load. So like, we're like at like every 13 minutes or 14 minutes, Sean hits that horn at practice and yells scatter. It's become like a cultural part of what we do. Like literally you'll hear all the players, he yells scatter and they kind of make fun of them. They all yell scatter and, and everyone kind of walks away from each other and then, and then comes back together. Um, 
And it's it's uh, I think it's really important because, you know, you, you don't want to operate in terms of, um, you know, you know, you want to follow the protocols, but you also want to know, like you want to know the science. You want to know that, you know, hey, we can be together for a minute or two, like we especially if we have masks on. But there's a way there's always a way to do things better. So we, we just keep trying to find different ways to whether it's how our lockers are situated or or Sean yelling scatter at practice, just trying to do it better so that we keep everyone safe. You also told me that each player was in a, a suite during training camp. How do you do that now? And, and do you do anything to, to try to keep your players apart during an average day now during the regular season? I mean, it, it, it's always there. It's optional for the guys. Like we have some guys that are like, you know, that's where they want to meet at. Some guys go to the – so we have the position meeting rooms and we have the suites. Guys can watch from the suite. The position meeting rooms are 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 so big because they're they're our stadium, like the big concourse lounges and stuff that that you know everyone's everyone's you know more than six feet apart. Um, when we have a meeting, you know, we'll say, "Hey, red light check," and everyone checks their scanner to make sure you know is my red light blinking or not. So we 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 just try to make sure we take advantage of the science. I mean, take advantage of the technology for the science. So we keep everyone six feet apart. Um, if they if they, if they have a suite, if they want to use it. And a lot of guys do. A lot of guys go to the meetings as is. And, and when we're together, we just make sure that we uh, stay six feet apart. And if we're closer than that, we scatter, you know, every every so, you know, every 10, 12, 14 minutes. Two other things and I'll let you go. One, um, I was curious, you're such a football fan. You're you know, you revere the game. Um, and the second game that you ever coached in the NFL you look out on the field and there's Tom Brady. And what was that like for you to, uh, you know, in the second game that you ever coached in the NFL, you're looking out and there's Tom Brady. I mean, you say Tom Brady, there's, there's Gronk, there's, you know, there's Jason Pierre-Paul who was, you know, I was with at the Giants, but I think, you know, I have such respect for Tom Brady and I just think to watch just, I mean, just when he throws the ball, it's beautiful. (laughs) You know, I mean, you've seen him on TV um, the last NFL game I had been to was I went to the Super Bowl versus the Falcons just as a fan uh, when they had that 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 great comeback. Um, but I, I just think it was it was it was it was exciting. You know, even the first game, you know, you know John Gruden, who's a friend of mine, I respect so much. At the end of the game yesterday, I mean, I walked out in the field. The first person's hand I shook was um, Patrick Peterson. I just told him, you know, how much respect I had for him. So that's one of the cool things about you know being in the league and and seeing these guys that you revere, like these iconic players. And Tom Brady would certainly be at the head of that list. That's cool. Um, and I wonder, Matt, I mean, what to you will constitute a successful season? Um, you know, I'm sure you're going to have different goals in different seasons that you have. And and obviously you want to win the Super Bowl every year. But have you thought and maybe shared with your team what you would consider a successful season? Yeah, I, I don't. I've never really said anything like that to them, like um, because I, I literally all I ever say to them is I just want every Sunday I want to wake up for that game and, and know that we're a better team than we were the week before. Like I, I believe that with all my heart. You know, Chuck Knoll, who's a who's a coach that I admire. You know, he, he once said, you know, um, the key to having a, a winning season, the key to having a great season, is to only worry about one week at a time and never think about the week before, the week ahead. I mean, I literally keep that quote, like like in my phone, like I have a Rolodex of quotes that I keep. And it's just always like, don't look ahead. Don't look back, you know, learn from the previous game. Just worry about this game. And, um, I, you know, I think for me as a young coach, um, I have to learn from the greats. And so when he says that, I just say to myself, like every week, fix the problems, coach the team, be better this week than they were last week. And so, you know, I have a certain way that I want us to play. I want us to play really hard. I want us to be a physical team. I want us to be a fun team to watch. I want people to watch us play and say, that's the way the game's supposed to be played. And so um, that's something that we're trying to build right now. And I think, you know, I hope that people watched the game yesterday and said that, but more importantly, I hope they watch the game this coming Sunday and say, Hey, they're playing the game the right way. So if we can, you know, if that's something that happens, we get better every week, then, then I think we're doing our jobs. Um, and that that's that's really kind of how I look at look look at the season. I'll tell you one of the things just watching a bunch of your game on Sunday, I thought one of the things that was really cool 
is to see both the presence and really the way that Teddy Bridgewater is playing. Um, you know, here's a guy who had not had a rushing touchdown since 2015, you know, since the last time he was a regular starter in the NFL, obviously before his horrible knee injury. And he's playing with so much confidence and he's playing like, to me, the guy who the Minnesota Vikings handed their team to in 2000, whatever it was, 14 or 15, and said, you're our guy. And, you know, I, I have no idea what you even remember about him then. But it's kind of cool to see Teddy Bridgewater come all the way back and to be also what appears to me to be, anyway, the kind of leader that every team would want at that position. If you ask Teddy uh, how he sees himself, he's definitely a football guy. Like, he loves football. I mean, he's – you know, we, we, something will come up in practice. He'll be like, Coach, you need to show him last week. You need to show him this play that happened, that play. You know, I mean, he's, he knows everything that happened in the NFL last week. But more importantly, I think he's someone who will say to you that, you know, his one of his – the way he sees himself is to, is to bring joy to other people and make other people better. Um, and that's how he self-defines himself. And so – when you have a guy like that, I mean, sometimes, um, you know, he might make do something on a play that, you know, the coach would say, hey, that's wrong, or I might disagree with something. But at the end of the day, I completely trust him because I know where his heart is. He loves the game. He loves the people around him. And so um, what I liked about Sunday, there's a lot of things we have to correct and a lot of things that aren't good enough. But I liked watching him score in the way you see all of our team run to pick him up. I like seeing a receiver catch a ball and the other two receivers running over to celebrate with him. And that's, that to me is what we're trying to build, especially in a year when there's no, not, not a lot of people in the stands, you know, or no people in the stands, many games is you had better be playing for each other. And that's, that's to me, that's Teddy's greatest gift is that he just wants to see the people around him succeed and be happy. Matt rule coach, of the Carolina Panthers really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, you know, look, your team is, a, I, I just tell you this, watching a lot of football every Sunday and then re-watching tape Monday and Tuesday, You, your team is what you say it is. Plays really, really hard. You do not see guys taking plays off. And uh, I, I think you got them going in the right direction. So congratulations so far. All right. Thank you very much. And now my conversation with the sage of Houston, John McClain, who's covered the Houston Texans since the day they were born. So happy to be joined on the podcast by uh, one of the great pro football writers in America, John McClain. He's only done it for 44 years, and he's covered the Texans every day of their existence and John, I wonder, as we record this mid-afternoon on Tuesday, we're about 24 hours removed from Bill O'Brien getting fired. Were you surprised? I was surprised, Peter. I wrote a column early, uh, on, uh, early on Monday saying that I thought if they lose to Jacksonville, Bill would be fired after the Jacksonville game. And I got that column in early because I wanted to watch the Astros play the Oakland A's. Because like you, I'm a big baseball fan. And so right when I sat down to watch the Astros, I get a tip. O'Brien has been fired. And, of course, that changed the rest of the day and the night. And when I talked to the owner, Cal McNair, the way he explained it, and he's right, this team has been going down a tube since it was 24-0 in Kansas City in the divisional round of the playoffs. And they choked that lead and lost 51-31. They've not been good this year, and they were getting worse. And they started against a tough schedule. The 0-3 record was no surprise. But I thought they would play better. I thought they would at least be competitive. And when they lost to Minnesota and the Vikings were 0-3 coming in here, the defense had given up 440 yards a game, the run defense 146. And the Texans made it close at the end, but they were pathetic in the first half, team going in the wrong direction. And Cal McNair said, we still hope to win some games. He said, I thought this was the time to do it. Don't wait till the bye week. If this is what I believe needed to happen, do it. And he did. They got the Jaguars, Titans, and Packers coming up before their bye week. So, um, 
tell me in your mind what went wrong with Bill O'Brien, a guy who won four division titles in six years, never made much noise in the playoffs, uh, but had been a fairly successful coach in Houston. He had been. Did a great job coaching Deshaun Watson. He called the plays until this season. He took it back over for the Vikings game, and uh, he did. But they, it was pretty obvious they can't get beyond the second round of the playoffs. Houston has not hosted an AFC championship game since the 61 Oilers. Houston has not had a team in the AFC championship game since the 1979 Oilers. And I think that everybody believed O'Brien had taken them as far as he could take them. Bill O'Brien, a general manager, as you know, Peter, made some controversial trades. One of them was uh, for DeAndre Hopkins. That was the big one. Nobody liked that trade. Players didn't like it. Media, fans, nobody did. Hop's playing great with Arizona. And David Johnson has the starting running back in Houston, and then last in rushing after being ninth. year before, they couldn't reach a contract agreement with Devion Clowney, trading him to Seattle. And uh, the Laramie Tunsil, Kenny Stills deal for two number ones and a number two. They That would have been a low number one pick this year. They thought, of course, it would be a low number one pick next year. And I tell everybody that cheering your hearing is coming from South Florida where the Miami Dolphins want the Texans to lose so bad. <laughs> um, what's your feeling about how O'Brien was, you know, and I, I, I tell people now, John, that it's really difficult not being able to sidle up to players in the locker room or to, or to be able to cover the beat as normal because now you're, you're on zoom calls with everybody else. So it's, it's really hard to read the tea leaves, but as somebody who's been around the Texans forever, did you sense that the players were tuning them out? That's an interesting question, Peter, because if they were tuning him out, I don't think they would have gone right to the last play in a come from behind game against Minnesota on the last drive. Deshaun Watson took the Texans straight down the field. They thought they had a touchdown on a five yard pass the Will Fuller uh, replay overturned it because the ball hit the ground, correct decision, game over. Had they scored that touchdown, they would have had a two-point conversion uh, to try to tie the game and possibly force overtime. But I think the players got tired of O'Brien blowing up at him. Bill has got a temper. Everybody has felt his wrath at one time or another, including certain media person who covers the team for the Houston Chronicle. And he never held it against people, but he'd blow up. I told him one time, it's your temper going to get you fired, not your coaching. And and when you win, coaches can get away with that. But then when you're losing, everybody walks around on eggshell. They're afraid they're going to say or do the wrong thing. And it gets people in the building on eggshells. And that's not the kind of atmosphere you need when you're losing. That's shelf life, Peter. Remember, it used to be 10 years. Now there's coaches that go beyond that. But at some point, the message goes in one ear and out the other. And I kind of believe that's what was happening in Houston with the players because the players are tired of getting blasted by the media and the fans for being 4 We'll do something about it. Jacksonville's not the best test. Jaguars come to Houston with a three-game losing streak, giving them 22 points a game in those three games. And then they go to Tennessee where they won last year. That'll be a much better barometer of where this team stands with Romeo Cornell as the interim coach. Do you think O'Brien was surprised? I asked him when we talked to him on Zoom on Monday, I asked him first question if he's worried about being fired. And he said, I worry about things I can control. I can't control that. So then I asked him on the Zoom that we did with him on Monday afternoon if he had been surprised and what he thought about it. Yeah. And he said he knew when they lost that game there was a chance that it would happen because we're, we're in the business of winning and we didn't get it done. Um, so, John, uh, you know, what's been interesting in, in Houston is obviously – 
with O'Brien being given the reins as general manager, but also with a guy he brought in to basically run his front office and the administration, Jack Easterby, from New England. How do you think that dynamic played into this? Jack Easterby is the executive vice president of football operations. This is his second year in the organization. First year he had that title. O'Brien has been the general manager for two years. He just didn't have the title. And so O'Brien had final say on everything on the football operation. He consulted Easterby. Bill was concerned with the coaching, with the personnel. He wanted Easterby involved in everything else. Easterby handled a lot of the responsibilities that come under the general manager title because O'Brien didn't want to do it. And he consulted him on personnel. Easterby's the point man on contract negotiations. And those two guys kept telling us how well they worked together. Did they have differences? Absolutely. Did they have shouting matches? Absolutely. Everybody who worked with O'Brien had differences and shouting matches because Bill was, as Anthony Weaver called it last week, when I did a story about all three coaches in franchise history being under the same roof Sunday, Vikings here with Gary Kubiak and Dom Capers, Anthony Weaver played for Kubiak, coached under uh, O'Brien for five years. I said, what are the similarities and differences? And he said, similarities, uh, they're very uh, driven to succeed. Both want to win bad. They work like crazy. Gary's a player's coach. He lets the players kind of drive the ship and uh, – he keeps his hand on the rudder where Bill is the captain of the ship and we know how he wants things. And, uh, and that's the way it is. Bill O'Brien is the captain of the ship. He had differences with general manager, Rick Smith, who resigned general manager, Brian Gain, who was fired in June 19 and O'Brien took over the personnel side of the organization. So Jack Easterby worked with him hand in hand, nobody, but O'Brien Easterby and Cal McNair, knows exactly what he agreed with. You know, did he want Hopkins traded? Did he not? Nobody knows. But the bottom line, Peter, Bill O'Brien was in charge. Every decision that was made was made by him with the approval of owner Cal McNair. Will Easterby now run the search and will he run the front office? What will Uh, Easterby's role be going forward? Well, first of all, he better be in his current role because they don't have anybody else that can do it. You know, you got a transition period. As you know, Peter, all those scouts and personnel, uh, their their personnel people, their contracts don't expire till after the draft. So they've got to have somebody up there with his hand on the rudder, and that's going to be Easterby. Easterby's not going to be fired, and uh, he will be involved in the hiring process. Uh, last, Jamie Roots, the president, will be involved. And um, they hired Corn Ferry to help them in their last coaching search. And Jed Hughes was involved. I don't know if they'll do that again. That was Bob McNair's decision. Cal McNair was there every day as well. But one of the reasons Cal McNair said he made the move when he did, it gives them more time to put together the list they're interested in. Because, you know, agents are going to be calling them of all assistant coaches. I think it's an attractive job. You have patient owners. They pay a lot of money. Uh, they pay more on payroll this year than any team in the NFL. And uh, Cal McNair, he wants to know what's going on, and he keeps a close eye on it, and they have to sign off with him on big decisions. But he believes if you hire a GM and a coach, you pay them to do the job you expect, and if they do it, great. If they don't do it, you fire them. And that's why the head coach and general manager is gone. What is the chance, do you think, that when the dust settles, Easterby's the general manager and whoever he hires as a coach just coaches? I think that's a possibility, but I think this, I think they, they, I don't know if he'll be GM or just keep his same title with the GM duties, but I also think they better bring in somebody really strong in the front office who's got a a good track record as a personnel guy. Now, how are you going to get a guy to do that? It will pay him a lot of money. And the head coach is not going to be the general manager and the head coach, but a good head coach like, say, Eric Bieniemy, who's going to have multiple offers, I believe, he would have some leverage. And he may say, like Andy Reid, I want final say over personnel. 
I want a good general manager working with me. And he's, but I want that final say. Now, I don't know if they'll give it or not. It's way too early. But Eric Bieniemy is the one that I'm already pushing. Greg Roman, who was here under Dom Capers, I think he'd be good by day ball. People are talking about Dabo Swinney. If Dabo wanted to come to the NFL, sure, they would be interested. But he might rather go with Trevor Lawrence instead of John Watson. And Lincoln Riley's name's already come up. What I, what I know, Peter, is this. They're going to hire a coach who's an offensive-oriented coach who has had a lot of success with a quarterback with a skill set of Deshaun Watson. And I think that's that's where they're going to start. And I think ultimately that will be the guy they bring in to work with the, to head the team and work closely with Watson and the offense. I hadn't even thought of Dabo Swinney, who I know Easterby knows, but I hadn't even thought of the fact that Dabo Sweeney, if he chose to go to the NFL, there's a chance he could coach either his former quarterback or his current quarterback at the next level. That's a that's a fairly amazing thing. Have you heard much? Have you heard much about the relationship between Easterby and Sweeney? Uh, no, I have not. And you know, Dabo's never given any indication he wants to go into the NFL. I mean, he's the most popular and powerful person in in South Carolina, and I'm pretty sure the governor would admit that. He's got a fiefdom there to do whatever he wants. Why would he want to come into the NFL and undergo all that scrutiny in a situation like Bill O'Brien just was fired from? And uh, But I tell you what, he had a choice of going to the Jets with Trevor Lawrence or the Texans with Deshaun Watson. I'm betting on Deshaun Watson. I would. John, last thing. What is the – what does the uh, the fervent, avid – Houston Texan fan want to happen? What is the structure he wants? Who do you think he would want to see as coach? And would he want to see, would he, she want to see Easter be uh, as the GM? Uh, fans here want, uh, first of all, they wanted O'Brien fired. Calvin there is the most popular guy in Houston right now, other than Astros owner Jim Crane, but that could crash in a hurry, depending on what happens in their series with the Oakland A's, but uh, they wanted Bill fired. And so now they want a, a general manager to come in, a legitimate general manager with a personnel background and let him hire the head coach, be, in, in, or be in, involved in, with the search for the new coach and uh, do it that way. And if Easterby stayed, he can stay in his current position and work with them. But that's what the fans and the media are advocating. John, you just brought up the Astros, and you're right. We're both big baseball fans. And I wonder, what's the after such a weird year, uh, you know, that the Astros had, they barely scratched into the playoffs. What's the feeling about the Astros in town now after the cheating scandal and, and the weird year that they had? What what's the Are fans disillusioned with them, or do they love them? Oh, fans love the Astros, but they were so bad during the regular season lost three or four to the Rangers to finish the season. Uh, they had been swept by the Angels at one point. They lost Justin Verlander for after one start. They lost their closer, Roberto Osuna, the first week. Rookie of the year, uh, uh, Jordan Alvarez came off COVID-19, hit a home run in his first game, blew out uh, teleattendance and had to undergo surgery. And they've had a lot of players who didn't hit in regular season and when they went to Minnesota, where the Twins were 24-7 and this year and had not lost back-to-back -back games, they beat them and limited them to one run in each game. Then they go to L.A. to play the A's. And there's been a lot of mouthing off by the A's about the Astros. Mike Fires, of course, was the whistleblower. He's yet to pitch against them. Everybody's opening pitches in this series. And they go out there and they hit, did 10 runs and 16 hits. And one of the things people leave out about their cheating in 2017, they keep talking about how bad they cheated. They pounded the ball in L.A. They killed the Dodgers out there in the World Series. And people forget, did they bring their trash can lids with them? Did they bring their buzzers with them to L.A.? That team was better on the road than it was at home. And they were better on the road in the World Series last season, winning three on the road and losing four at home. Right now, Peter, they've won six consecutive road playoff games. So 
So you can't take those trash can lids with you. <laughs> John McLean, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, you, you get much of a gut feeling as you enter into this long slog of, of coach seeking. It sounds like you're in the enemy camp. You have any idea who else is going to be a real prime candidate? I don't at this point. He just started, but based on what I know they want, I think Bienemy ought to be at the top of their list. That's what I've been tweeting and writing and broadcasting. And maybe he will ultimately get that job. You know, there's another guy on that staff, Mike Kafka, is going to be a head coach at some point. But at the good thing about now, we can start talking about this and talk about it for 12 more games before they have to do the serious interviews. And that'll be exciting because I don't think the team – will be very good. But, Peter, in 2008, they started 0-4 under Gary Kubiak, bounced back and finished 8-8. Eight and eight. I'm sure that they would love to finish 8-8 eight eight this season after the way they've started. John McClain, thank you for helping me. Hey, Peter, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. My thanks to Matt Rule of the Carolina Panthers, John McClain of the Houston Chronicle. Some great information that you got to hear in the last 50 minutes or so. Um, Before I go, just a quick reminder, every Friday, uh, I am on Pro Football Talk Live, PFT Live, on Friday morning from 7 to 9 Eastern time on Peacock, and you can watch it for free. So come and hear me and Florio yell at each other for at least an hour and 50 minutes of the two hours. I'll tell you, it's some wonderful entertainment. And it'll really wake you up in the morning. So listen to me and Florio every Friday, 7 to 9 a.m. on Peacock. And that's it for the podcast this week. Come back next week. I have no idea who the guests will be, but they're going to be fascinating. Have a great week, everybody. Everybody.